Some new numbers released earlier today from Vancouver Police. Deputy Howard Chow spoke at a news conference this morning uh, talking about some of the numbers, particularly those numbers that are up and are, were seen going up during this pandemic. Although Vancouver residents did their best and stayed home to stop the spread of COVID, VPD officers could not do the same as crimes in the city continued. Some types of crimes increased, others decreased. And during the pandemic, VPD has used data and analytics to deploy the appropriate police resources to the hardest hit areas. One one example of that is property crime. As the statistics in the report show, during the first six months of this year, the number of break-ins into into businesses and commercial properties increased by 47.9%. Let's bring in Constable Tanya Visentin, the Media Relations Officer with the Vancouver Police Department. Constable, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, Those are just some of the numbers that uh, were released earlier today. What can you say about some of the other uh, cases where we're seeing violent crime up by 5.2%, also an increase in what are called serious crimes? Mm -hmm. So just like Deputy Chow said, uh, during the pandemic, you know, we we did use our analytics to look at the hardest hit areas. And as he mentioned, property crime went way up. And that had to do with, you know... um, commercial businesses being uh, vacant throughout that time. So in response to all that, we uh, deployed more patrols officers in the hardest hit areas, and we also engaged in um, investigative projects, and and that did bring down um, those numbers. Unfortunately, uh, upon review of our our, um, stats, from January to June of this year, violent crime did increase in Vancouver by 5.2%. And like you mentioned, this increase was driven by a significant increase in the number of serious assaults. So the number of serious assaults has increased 21.7%. And serious assaults, um, can, it includes areas of Yale Town, West End, Strathcona, and Chi- uh, Chinatown. And although the, the report was just from January to June, we have seen uh, numbers continue to rise throughout the summer. And when we talk about serious assaults, uh, Deputy Chow also talked about chronic offenders. Are are we talking chronic offenders and people that police are aware of in these situations, or are these more random assaults that are happening on the streets? Uh, I'd say it's a bit of both. Um, You know, these chronic offenders are also opportunists, so they see... uh, when they see a chance to commit crime, they will commit crime, and that's pretty much what makes them a chronic offender. But we we also, and some of these things are targeted incidents. There are people that know each other. So I wouldn't say it's too much of a random uh, attack, as it may have been with like our hate crimes, for example. These serious assaults sometimes are people within the same kind of community. Uh, We also saw a a decrease in break-ins to vehicles, and and Deputy Chow talked about the fact when when everything was shut down, there weren't as many people driving and parking, so that made sense. But uh, the number of the increase of break-ins to commercial and business premises, Mm 47.9%, that's a pretty big number. Oh, uh, of course. And so, and, and that was, you know, it's, it's so disheartening to see that, especially the small mom and pop shops, like when, when things like that happen to them, it's their life is gone. And so it, it was very concerning for us. And that's why we really amped up our uh, deployment models. We began all these projects and we engaged more heavily with businesses in the area and business owners, providing them tips and because even what might think of like, oh, that's a good idea. Maybe some people didn't really think of that. So we really were engaged with the community to bring these numbers down. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, would you say, though, and again, when we talk about the chronic offenders, so the police officers, particularly particularly the officers that are in those neighborhoods, whether it's Chinatown, Yaletown, Strathcona, uh, that are patrolling those streets, they know who these chronic offenders are. It, is it safe to say they shifted from breaking into vehicles to breaking into vacant businesses? You know, that's a good um it's a good assumption. Uh, I, I say, like, again, like, when these criminals, a lot of them are, are opportunists. So when they see an opportunity, they will commit a crime. And, and if there's no cars to break into, they may might as well go into uh, another type of crime. So, you know, it's not only we're ha- we have all these other projects going on. People are, you know, we have our surveillance unit engaged. And I won't go into detail on how we um, monitor these offenders. But chronic offenders are monitored. And um, we are doing our best to prevent any of these crimes from happening. Uh, why can't they be arrested? or removed from the situation somehow? Oh, yes, we do. We do make arrests. I mean, it's not as simple. You know, we have to provide a package to Crown Council uh, and recommend these charges. And essentially, it's up to Crown to approve these charges. So when we can, we have when we have enough evidence, uh, whether it be witness information, video surveillance, whatnot, we uh, have to provide a thorough uh, package to Crown Council. And from there, it's up to Crown whether these charges get laid. It's got to be frustrating for police when they see the chronic offenders, if they are arrested, if they're back on the street. We, we often refer to that revolving door. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. I mean, <clears throat> our officers are so passionate about uh, putting, you know, in quotations, the bad guys in jail, right? So that that's our job. We're here to make Vancouver a safe place. You know, throughout this pandemic, it, it's we're already going through so much stress as a city, as a province, uh, as a country, right? And and it's it's so disheartening that whether it be hate crimes, violent crimes, property crimes, any any of these types of crimes to a person, it, it affects them. And not only are we dealing with the stress of, of our health that may be at risk, it's also other things in our lives. And so our officers, you know, pandemic or no pandemic, I, I said it since March, we were out there, we will be there and we will respond. And we also do need people to call police, no matter how minimal they think the incident is, because it does help us um, analyze the data, and then shift our resources accordingly. If if certain neighborhood doesn't call us for break-ins to happening, we won't really know what's happening. So, you know, we need people to call police. And just one other uh, statistic that was put out today, too, and we've been talking a lot, as you know, about Strathcona in the news. So the statistics for this, for the first seven months of the year, calls for service about weapons up by 50%, break-ins up by 68%, Mm -hmm. and calls about threatening behavior increased by 14%. And I know uh, the patrols in that area have been increased, but how do you respond to those kind of numbers? It's concerning. I mean, as we all know, the community dynamics of Strathcona have changed with the closure of Oppenheimer Park and and the displacement of of people from the park. So, again, just like we did with our um, commercial uh, break-and-enter situation, we're doing it with Strathcona. We are fully engaged. We are engaged with the neighbourhood. We've heard their complaints. The neighbourhood has been... Uh, awesome at uh, whether it's through social media or calling good old-fashioned 911 letting us know their concerns Um, you know they've also been showing concerns toward the city and that's the other thing police just play a uh, a minor role in this we're we're more of a reactive um, uh, agency so to speak right you call 911 we'll be there to react so we also need our other partners from the city from the province to to really get to the underlying issue of crime and why crime is happening. And that, that goes back to housing, uh, mental health, drug-addicted individuals. We need to get them help, and, and we need to work with our partners on that.
just uh, wanted to check with you as well, uh, since we have you on the line, and I know you talked about this this morning also, any update as far as to have three homicides in one night, busy night for Vancouver police, mm-hmm. any update in those investigations? No update as of now. Uh, like you mentioned, yeah, we had uh, two incidents where three uh, people were found dead last night. Both incidents are not connected. Uh, but yeah, a very busy night for our members. Our major, our detectives from the major crime unit were called out and been working around the clock on these. And uh, if anybody uh, has any information on those two uh, uh, incidents, I do ask that they call 911. Any concern for public safety at this point? At this point, no. Uh, our detectives have not indicated there's a, a threat to the public at all. All right. Constable, we'll leave it there. Thanks again so much for your time today. No problem, Jill. Thank you for having me. That's Constable Tanya Visenton, the media relations officer with the Vancouver Police Department. Some pretty significant stats, new crime numbers released today. Well, yesterday on the program, we were talking with a restaurant owner about the extension of the patio program. It hadn't been voted on yet, but as expected, it did go through. So restaurants will be able to take advantage of those patio spaces, probably have to bring in some heaters, maybe some tents structures, a bit of roof uh, protection from the rains when they start. But is that enough to keep restaurants at least making ends meet? Probably not. Ian Tostenson joins us now once again, the president and CEO of the BC Food and Restaurant Association. Thanks so much for being here. Absolutely, Jill. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing very well, but it seems like yesterday we were talking uh, to a restaurant owner who was really upbeat, saying this patio program extension would be great. Uh, but you're raising some concerns about the health order that we've seen as far as uh, timing of alcohol sales and some other concerns in the industry. Yeah, that's right. So the background on this is that last Wednesday, um, you know, we, we at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Dr. Henry said, all restaurants and bars uh, and um, nightclubs have to be closed, and the same with standalone banquet halls. But um, liquor service after 10 o'clock has to end, and everything has to close at 11 unless you have food and no alcohol, you can continue. Initially, we thought, that's all right, I mean, 10 o'clock. But then we realized in about two days how terribly impacting it is to restaurants. And the example was uh, a wonderful Italian restaurant in downtown Vancouver, uh, told me yesterday that, you know, between, you know, sort of 9.30, 10 o'clock, they get, uh, in this case, doctors come in and have a wonderful dinner and a couple of bottles of wine and just chill. And we then did a survey and we saw that about, you know, maybe 15 to 20 percent of business and restaurants are, are, is actually done in later evenings. And this is not wild and crazy causing problems. This is orderly, responsible service. And so, her health order um, has caused a lot of problems. And, of course, with bars, um, most of the revenue is derived about 30 or 40 or 50% after 10 o'clock at night. So what happens is that the health order is verbalized and then it's written. And within about 48 hours, we actually see the health order to see all the nuances in that health order. Well, today, which has been, uh, what, a week, eight days since, we've heard nothing. We haven't seen the written health order and we've got industry that are just frantic because now we're getting inspections. Some businesses are getting fined. People don't understand what the order means. Um, is 10 o'clock really what the issue is here? Or is it the bad operators um, that are causing uh, you know, problems for the majority of restaurants? So we wrote a letter to Dr. Henry today. Very tough letter, but we're tired of the uh, non-partnership that's uh, occurring, just being arbitrary. She needs to engage this industry, which is heart and soul, wrote the opening plans 
on how to do this. And, um, and we need to work with her so because we can affect behavior change. We can do a lot of messaging to a lot of those audiences. And in fact, we make phone calls to restaurants and bars that aren't complying. And if need be, we'll phone the health department and say, shut them down. So she needs to use th- this resource and she needs to stop sort of holding us at, at arm's length. So we've asked the premier to get involved in this because the industry is reeling. Patios will help for sure. But when you put this arbitrary 10 o'clock uh, and, and once, how does this affect somebody in, in Merritt or Kamloops? Like just sort of going, why 10 o'clock? So we've got some problems that developed over this, Joe. So what do you think happened in that a few months ago when all of the restaurants were closed down? I remember talking to you and I remember Dr. Henry actually holding up the restaurant association as an example of industry mm-hmm. that was at the front of this. So was coming up with plans, was giving suggestions and saying, this is how we can open up safely. Uh, so that seems like such a difference from this public order coming down and you haven't even seen the details. Yeah, and I think what's happened here is that our, our COVID, we could see something was going to give. The COVID numbers are going up. I think Dr. Henry, in fairness, is saying, I'm trying to avoid people conjugate, you know, getting in large groups, uh, probably particularly Granville Street and Yaletown, I think, where a lot of these problems are happening. So if I shut it down, people will sort of not be there, and that maybe will stop, you know, groups from gathering. Well, what we're hearing is that, uh, the groups are gathering, but they're going to private parties. They're doing it other ways, not necessarily bars and restaurants, where there's no control. So I think that the unintended consequences of this, I think she's trying to solve a problem which we support her. But by doing what she's done, I don't think she realized the, both the economic and the unintended consequences of forcing the sociability side um, to, you know, as I said, private parties. So she's, um, and I think she's a bit stuck right now because, you know, she's she's made this order and and she really has never come to us and said, what do you think? We've always been giving her information and she's responded. And then last week, interesting comment you made, she actually pointed out the restaurant industry has done a great job. The restaurants and pubs in BC have done a great job. So I'm kind of going, well, that's great. Why'd you shut us down? I think we're shut down because some restaurants are offside they should be closed and they're causing you know the problems there's you know they're they're not following any of the protocols and so now we've got this division within the industry where 95 percent of these business owners that have invested thousands of dollars to do this right and be part of the system are suffering for the, the sake of a few so we've said let's start talking number one and number two is get your enforcement and get really tough on these businesses and patrons that frankly just are ignoring what we need to do right now to get through the COVID uh, problems that we're in. Uh, Do you think part of it is too when when Dr. Henry talked about the banquet halls she said she made a point of saying that the contact tracing was taking up huge resources in public health trying to find people and to get on top of it. it do you think that's part of it and you're kind of being lumped in there too in that contact tracing and public health officials are so busy that they don't want to have to be dealing with enforcement or dealing with it after the fact? Yeah, I thought of that. I mean, it would, it's easier to sort of have a blanket, shut it down, as opposed to, and how many resources do we have to chase all this, uh, as opposed to looking at the nuances. And I, you know, I get, and I feel sorry for banquet halls, but, um, you know, there are some issues with banquet halls that just, frankly, we, you know, I just can't see that she can see her way through that. Same way with, um, you know, groups over 50. She's trying to contract, uh, and she's been very clear about this, contract our involvement in telling us to get her bubbles smaller. 
and that's fine. But we can do that. And we showed that during, you know, when we had good numbers. I was trying to um, to say, like, when we were when we opened with all the disciplines, we had pretty good COVID numbers in BC. So something's happened here, and I think it's the the effect of the sort of private parties and the stuff we saw on beaches and people getting together. I get that, but I don't think it's fair to take this industry, which is working so hard to do it right, because we have to, we have no choice, and to say, well, we'll just cast it and just have one blanket policy. So, I, you know, she's going to have to rethink this, I think. We need to, to differentiate in the different sector. So you're asking then restaurants and bars that have liquor sales, they should be able to continue those liquor sales to midnight instead of 10 p.m.? Yeah, we're calling to 12, to 12 o'clock. We're calling for... Um, to be able to bring to to come to her table and have discussions with how we can be more effective in our communication. We you know as we we have a lot of you know twenty to twenty nine year olds that work in the industry, and uh, and let her understand the disciplines, the protocols, and you know, I'd like to see some some numbers too and some some evidence to suggest that restaurants are the problem here because we know that they're not. We know where the problems are coming from, and um, so we need to open a dialogue, and I think she's been hesitant. Maybe there's something to do with the, you know, the, 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 the independence of the provincial health officer. I don't know. But if we want to go after COVID and we want to get these numbers down, we're a very powerful, motivated force to do that. So we're inviting her to the table to see what we can work together as opposed to being arbitrary. It's really hurting. I mean, it's, you know, you're, you've got businesses now that are saying it's not worth it. I'm going to close and we're going to create all sorts of problems when I don't think that's necessary at this stage. All right. Well, Ian, we'll leave it there and uh, keep us updated mm. if things do change. And thanks so much for coming on the show again. Thanks, Jill. And uh, I really appreciate you always. You're always very helpful. And uh, thank you. <laughs> all right. No problem at all. That is Ian Tostenson. He is the president and CEO of the BC Food and Restaurant Association. Right now, we're taking a look at a new report that shows just how much the top billionaires in this country have made since the start of the pandemic. And Alex Hemingway joins me now, an economist, a public finance analyst at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives at the BC office, also the lead author of this report. Alex, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, thanks for having me. Good afternoon. Uh, so what are you looking at here as far as the, the billionaires? I know that the, there have been, uh, we've looked at them around the world, but if we focus in on Canada's uh, billionaires, who are we talking about? Well, so uh, what, what we looked at in particular here were the top 20 uh, richest billionaires on the Forbes uh, uh, billionaires list uh, this year uh, among the Canadians, and it includes uh, some familiar names and some less familiar ones. Uh, uh, David Thompson and family uh, would be one for a, a fortune coming from the Thompson Reuters company uh, here in BC. You see uh, Jim Pattison on the list. Uh, actually, uh, and, uh, another uh, grocery store uh, uh, magnate family, the, the Weston family that owns the Loblaws grocery chain, uh, also uh, third third on the list. And you know, th- there's a real uh, uh, there's a real striking uh, contrast there actually between how, uh, for example, the owners of these uh, huge grocery store chains are doing compared to uh, uh, the fact that they uh, very rapidly, those companies very rapidly clawed back the uh, uh, pandemic pay, that $2 an hour increase that that was instituted for a couple of months under public pressure. They clawed that back in June, uh, even as their uh, stocks and and, and profits uh, uh, began shooting up. 
so is the concern for you the fact that the billionaires continued making money and didn't pass that on to their employees or that they continued making money at all? Well, I think what it is is a reflection of uh, um, a trend that we've seen uh, prior to the pandemic uh, uh, and magnified by it in terms of the extent of uh, inequality in our society. So, yes, part of it has to do with uh, uh, that gap between uh, the owners of these companies and the people doing the work uh, within them. And part of it has to do with, you know, we know we face uh, uh, some big challenges uh, in this country where uh, public investment is, is needed. Uh, uh, climate change, of course, comes to mind, but also, uh, you know, and, and again, magnified by the, the pandemic, the need for a universal uh, child care system, uh, the housing crisis that exists in many parts of the country here in B.C. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're an enormously wealthy country. Uh, we do have uh, the means to address uh, these types of uh, uh, crises make the kinds of investments that are needed to meet people's needs. Uh, uh, but uh, that wealth is, is distributed very unequally. And this is another example of that at a particularly difficult uh, time when, you know, this, this billionaire wealth is, is shooting back up, uh, but workers are still hurting. And, you know, we're down uh, 1.1 million jobs still uh, in Canada from the, from the latest uh, labor force survey data. Uh, the report talks about the need for a wealth tax. What would that look like? So uh, the, um, modern wealth tax proposals have been uh, uh, bubbling up uh, increasingly over the past couple of years. The, the, the body of economics uh, research on this is, is growing. Uh, we saw proposals uh, maybe most famously south of the border, uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, and Bernie Sanders running in the Democratic primary put forward proposals. Uh, and we also saw the federal NDP put put this forth, uh, uh, a modest version of this uh, forth in the in the last election. How it works is uh, we're talking about focusing in on, on the very richest few in our society. So you can, there are different places you could set the threshold. Uh, for example, the, the, the NDP proposal here had looked at uh, a tax on wealth over $20 million. So what in practice, what that means is the first $20 million of uh, someone's wealth uh, is not taxed at all. It's not captured by uh, this sort of annual wealth tax. And uh, a- any amount above that would be subject to an annual tax. For example, uh, 1% in that modest NDP version. Uh, and some of the more aggressive proposals coming from economists and, and, and also from those politicians south of the border would r- ramp that up to 2 or even 3% annually, even beyond that. Uh, particularly on the even higher levels of wealth, so having additional thresholds at $100 million, a $1 billion, uh, and uh, that's a mechanism through which uh, 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 we can raise some of these revenues and, and address the inequality that we see in, in our society today. Uh, there's also a call for a crackdown when it comes to tax havens, because there's been the argument as well that if you start going after wealth and taxing wealth, it just prompts people in that position to hire better accountants and to find more yeah. ways to avoid it. Exactly. These, these need to go hand in hand. And, uh, you know, the good news is uh, uh, we, we know, and uh, for example, I, you know, uh, some of the research that's cited in this report, and I also spoke to uh, uh, one of the foremost experts uh, in the world, actually, on, on tax havens, uh, Gabriel Zuckman down at the University of California, who has looked at this in detail. And, and when you get into the nitty-gritty, what you find is that we actually, uh, 
for the most part, know the mechanisms in terms of the policies that need to be uh, brought in place to effectively uh, crack down on tax havens. Really, what's missing is is the political will. Uh, and, you know, that, that that's quite striking. Again, when you think about uh, a policy like the wealth tax, you wonder uh, why it's not uh, more central on the political agenda in a country like Canada. Because if you look at the polling, uh, there's overwhelming support for it, which is unusual for, for any public policy and in particular for a tax. So you see 75 percent support for, for a wealth tax on the super rich in this country. Uh, and that crosses party lines as well. So 69% of conservatives support it. It's even higher uh, overall support in BC at, at 80%. So, you know, we, we have the technical means to institute these types of policies. We have strong public support, uh, but, but there's, there, there remains a gap there. And I think, you know, that in part reflects uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, political and economic heft of, of, of the very wealthy uh, uh, in this country and, and the way in which uh, uh, their influence can skew our public policy agenda. Uh, it also calls uh, for the equalizing of the tax treatment of capital gains income. What do you mean by that? Yeah, this is a, an, an important uh, uh, quirk of our tax system that many people may not realize. So income that comes from capital gains that essentially that comes from existing wealth is actually taxed at half the rate uh, that income from work from from labor of uh, different kinds uh, is in this country. So there's a, there's an extreme inequality here. There's no uh, core economic reason uh, to have that disparity in place. It's largely a reflection of uh, of the, the the respective power of these groups, and that's a gap that we could close uh, uh, very rapidly in our. Uh, existing uh, uh, tax system if there was uh, uh, the will to do so and if, if the pressure was uh, uh, brought to bear by people uh, 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 to ensure that happens. All right, Alex, uh, we'll have to leave it there for today. We're right out of time, but thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Oh, thanks a lot for having me. All right, Alex Hemingway is an economist, also the lead author of this new report, uh, public finance analyst with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Well, the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction is going to be the lead of a major initiative that is set to update Canada's low-risk alcohol drinking guidelines, and that is set to happen by March of 2022. So this is a multi-month initiative. It's got funding from Health Canada. It's going to look at things Things like the medical impacts of alcohol use, uh, the impacts on mental health, the social impacts. And joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Dr. Peter Butt, Associate Professor of, the, of Academic Family Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan. Thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon. Thank you. Uh, this sounds like a, a pretty major initiative. What do you think the focus will be as far as low-risk drinking and, and the guidelines, uh, if there is such a thing, of, of low-risk drinking? Well, you're you're absolutely right to raise that as an initial question, because what we do know now, and uh, that's evolved over the last uh, decade when we had our first iteration of lowest drinking guidelines in Canada, what we do know now is that harms related to alcohol increase with consumption. So there's no, no risk level. 
so then the question is, that, uh, what is the tolerable level of risk? What's, what's reasonable? Should people be drinking at all? Not that we're promoting prohibition, but rather let's help consumers to think about their drinking uh, in a broader way, in a more provocative way. Indeed, there are people who don't drink that are negatively impacted by people who do drink. And those are the social harms in terms of domestic violence or uh, sexual violence against women, male-on-male violence. Uh, there's a host of things such as uh, drinking while driving that uh, have an impact on people through alcohol, even though they're not consuming themselves. Uh, do, are there guidelines right now as far as low risk drinking? Yes, absolutely. They came out in 2010, 2011 in Canada. And uh one of the challenges is uh, conveying to consumers what a standard drink is. And your red solo cup filled with beer is not the same amount of alcohol as your red solo cup filled with um, liquor. So the amount of uh, alcohol needs to be uh, communicated, and that's really challenging. We don't have standard drink labeling on beverage alcohol. So you don't know how many drinks, standard drinks, are in a bottle of wine. Incidentally, it's about five or six, depending upon the alcohol content. But uh, beer, cooler, it, it varies a lot from product to product. So it, it makes it difficult for people to actually know how much they're drinking and then correlate that to what would be recommended. And uh, currently in the National Low Risk Drinking Guidelines, it's no more than two standard drinks in a given day for women, no more than three for men. On special occasions, they can go up to three or four respectively. Or um, during the course of a week, no more than 10 or 15. And I can tell you that's pretty liberal compared to other countries when we look at the international situation now. Uh, and and do you think with those guidelines too? I mean, does it also matter as far as a person's uh, physical uh, history or physical makeup? Uh, the, perhaps their drinking history, their genetics. Uh, do those things all play a role? They certainly can, and and there is a category in the current lower drinking guidelines of around zero for women who are pregnant or, or trying to get pregnant, uh, people that are driving or operating equipment, people with a history of a substance use disorder. Um, I think, though, that those sorts of um, questions need to be brought forward more with regards to, well, what is your history? Because we know that beverage alcohol is both teratogenic and carcinogenic. It causes birth defects as well as uh, a number of different cancers, mostly gastrointestinal and breast cancer. So if you have a family history of breast cancer or if you have a personal history of breast cancer, the advice is that you probably shouldn't be drinking alcohol and stimulating the the potential growth of a tumor. But people consume this, people drink it. Are there warning labels with regard to the carcinogenic effects of alcohol and beverages? Nope, nothing there at all. People deserve to know, and that's part of the knowledge translation that we're looking at with regards to lowest drinking guidelines. What do consumers deserve to know with regards to something that they're consuming in a way that the industry promotes is, is simply about happiness and health? Whereas, in fact, there there are significant harms. Uh, So what do you hope or what do you see these guidelines doing as far as updating and helping to educate people? Well, it's primarily an an education process, but uh, because we're not trying to tell people how to drink, um, we're not telling people to drink either. We need to help people to consider their drinking, whether or not they should be drinking, given their own risk profile 
as well as when, how much, under what circumstances, uh, so they can be informed. In order to do that, though, we need to keep in mind that this information is going out to youth, including youth that are underaged. So you, you now have a very nuanced level of messaging to a youth demographic that shouldn't be drinking legally, but are. Um, how do you provide and construct that sort of advice? How do you deliver it to women uh, who are more vulnerable because the, the physiology is different? It's not sexism, it's, it's science. But on the other hand, there are significant social harms related to um, alcohol-related sexual violence against women. How do you frame that conversation in a way that's respectful, doesn't blame the victim, but also helps people to be protected from perpetrators? Um, older adults are another uh, category, if you will, or population that are more vulnerable. So we need to be thinking of the equity of harms as well as some of the, the science towards the directed towards the more general population. So these are some of the challenges that, that we're going to be grappling with as well as reviewing the, the literature and the updates that the UK and Australia have done and um, some of the other issues that I'm sure people would like to bring forward. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for today and look forward to learning more about this as the initiative gets underway and continues. Dr. Peter Butt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate your interest. All right. That is a Dr. Peter Butt, Associate Professor, the Academic Family Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan. So we got a better idea on what the $1.5 billion recovery plan looks like in BC. You could also say $4 billion. This plan was a little bit confusing, even with the technical briefing, because some of the announcements were new today. But they also lumped in a lot of the announcements and the spending that had been announced and put forward in the past few weeks. So trying to figure out exactly what's new, that's what to reporters in the technical briefing and who are uh, now spending some time questioning the Premier and the Finance Minister are doing. We are joined now by with uh, Ken Peacock, who, who has been on the program before, Vice President of the BC Business Council, to break down uh, a few of these numbers. Ken, thanks so much for being with us. You're very welcome. Thanks for, for having me on. Well, I know it's uh, we're just getting the numbers and getting a better idea of uh, what is being announced, uh, but can you respond, or what are your thoughts so far to the economic recovery plan? Well, I, I agree with your opening comments that it, it is a little confusing. It's tough to make sense of what's going on um, because there is, like you said, re-announcements and new announcements, but essentially there's a, around $1.5 billion that the government has that it is allocating out uh, to different sectors and, and, and for uh, different initiatives to support the economic recovery and a stronger stronger growth in the provincial economy going forward. So that that's the essence of it. Um, we can get into discussions about how, how much it is, how effective it's going to be, and uh, where the money's allocated. I will say right off the top, though, uh, and it was included in your in your news report, the tourism industry was looking for significantly more and more money, and they didn't didn't get as much as, as they were looking for. So they're probably going to be disappointed. Uh, so let's talk about that. They had been asking for six hundred. $80 million, uh, probably knowing they weren't going to get that full amount, but the number given out today was $100 million. so like you said, a lot less. Sure. 
Sure, yeah, a lot less. And there was $50 million to set up a, some sort of organization or agency that's going to look at you know, supporting businesses and operations that, that appear to be more viable over the medium term. The, the thing about the tourism industry is it really, really is hard hit. And it is also spread right across the province. And there's a lot. It's also characterized by being made up of a lot of small operators. So um, it, it, the ask may have been a bit rich, but I think that the pain in the tourism industry is is among the most intense of any industry. So, uh, like like we said before, a little disappointment for that sector. Uh, do you think, though, too, when, whenever you hear the word task force, I know a lot of people wonder what exactly, what value you're getting for your dollar. So $50 million for a task force, I mean, don't we already have... Well, well be careful. They, that task force is going to allocate that $50 million. Okay. So it's not to operate the task force. But even then, do we not have groups like Destination BC, Tourism Vancouver, and groups that are already in the know? Yeah, no, that's a that's a that's a very good question. I guess the point of this task force is to, is to really focus on what can be done to prop up the industry. Some of these agencies that you just mentioned, like Destination BC, their expertise is is more geared towards marketing the the province's tourism industry. So I presume this task force will be set up to to really kind of try and identify what can be done, because these are very, very unusual circumstances, and it's not business as usual by any stretch for tourism. Uh, What do you say to, uh, is it $660 million for business tax relief, Uh, a 15% credit on business payroll uh, for employers who retain low to medium income jobs. Yes, so this uh, we released um, uh, an economic recovery plan actually about three weeks ago here at the Business Council. Many of the items or several of the items that, that were in our plan, we are pleased to see show up in this plan. Um, and, and one of the things that we were targeting and looking for was support for hiring and rehiring. Because at the Business Council, we are very concerned about kind of the long-term implications of unemployment dragging out and whatnot. And we really do need funding to, to retrain people to get them into other industries, in, in, presuming, you know, that tourism is not going to come back in the way the way that it, uh, it once was. So this funding is, is very welcome. Um, the 15, there's a 15% uh, credit for wages that is going to go towards, and if I'm reading this correctly, uh, new employees that are hired between the third and fourth quarters of this year. So, so this initiative is welcome, but to my mind, it, it's far too short-sighted. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's looking to boost employment over the very, very short term, and everything I'm looking at and seeing is we're going to need to maintain a focus on job growth and new job creation for much, much longer than one quarter. This is a several-year uh, recovery process that we're into. So um, just before wrapping up my thoughts here, I would note that both the Premier and the Finance Minister, Finance Minister James, said that this is just the preliminary stage and there's much more work to be done. So I will be a little cautious in being too credit credit critical about uh, that tax credit not carrying on into the future. But for the time being, it does seem remarkably short. Uh, so short-sighted uh, on that one. What about the grants that were announced as well, or that uh, the $300 million, I think, for the recovery grant program, again, the targeting of small and medium business uh, to, to come up with, with ways to, to get that revenue back? Sure. Yeah. And I, again, something that that we can absolutely support. Um, you know, the, the challenge here, Jill, is being able to for companies to be able to sustain uh, and maintain themselves while revenues are really low or weak, and and while they recover and grow and grow. So, you know, a lot of this funding is, is to get 
businesses through these difficult times, the key question is how long are they going to drag out for and how long can this fund, additional funding and financing go, go on for? So th- this, to me, is the, is the big challenge. It's, it's just we can't continue to, to dole out money in, in huge amounts um, indefinitely. And what are you hearing from business then? I mean, we've been waiting for this plan. And again, a lot of these initiatives had already been announced. But, but as you hear from businesses, are things changing? Are you seeing the mood change at all? Uh, I continue to think it's 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 very mixed. Um, you know, I see some businesses respond. If you think if you think about restaurants, uh, you know, respond and adapt very quickly. Others continue to struggle. It depends a great deal on your business model. Um, if you look at the job numbers in the province. Across industries, employment is, is still down across most industries, just a handful, uh, one of them being professional and scientific services, which is oriented towards computers and, and whatnot. That has done well, but, but really, the downturn is, is widespread. So uh, we're going to continue to need to see funding, and we're going to continue to need to target job creation and, and do whatever it takes to, to support job creation. So like I said, um, the, the Premier said this is early days for the plan, and there will be more coming. I, I do hope that is the case. Do you think that more is going to be coming as an election platform? Yeah, that's a possibility. There certainly is a lot of election talk uh, in the air. Um, uh, budget budget constraints will will factor into this just because bud- budgets have swelled so much. And this is another, I mean, it's another point that I think is important for the public and, and policymakers to understand, and, and that is this is not just a, a spending issue for governments. Yes, they are spending more money, but we are not seeing massive deficits solely because of spending increases. There's been a huge hit to revenue. And so one thing governments and policymakers should be thinking about is how do we grow that revenue and, and that is by making the environment for businesses to invest and spend money and hire more people as attractive as possible. And uh, so I think governments are going to have to pay attention to that revenue side. It's not just a, a spending issue here. All right, Ken, we will leave it there for today. Thanks so much. Always good to talk with you. Thanks, Jill. That's Ken Peacock, Vice President of the BC Business Council.